Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Geek and Spiel podcast. Thank you all for joining us this weekend. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm Emily. And I'm Sean. And thank you again for joining us. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, but first, the first thing I want to mention again, and what I'll probably mention every single week until the actual event, is our Extra Life Game Day event coming up on November 4th. Hoot hoot! Yeah, that's right. Sean and Emily here will be joining us alongside my wife Anita, Jeffrey. Amy. Amy's coming. Caitlin and Luke will be playing as a team. And Eric just joined. I, I just had to uh, push him to sign up <laughs> yesterday, so he just joined. Encourage. And, and just this slight prodding. We are currently our team, Team Geekenspiel, and you can find our team by searching for our team name on the Extra Life website at extra-life.org or by following the link we're going to put in the podcast description. We are currently ranked 321st out of 3,164 teams. That's right. Yeah, that's honestly an accomplishment, I think. Yeah, I mean, also, we, we most people haven't actually fully started fundraising yet, so that's going to quickly diminish but my hopes is we'll keep getting money to keep us in that top my, i think my goal last year was to stay in the top 100 and we, we just couldn't because i think by that point they're making like tens of thousands but maybe we'll get there one day right now we have 575 our current team goal is two thousand five hundred dollars and we're hoping to start increasing that if we get enough donations in uh most of us are donating to the texas children's hospital in houston I believe that Amy is who is who is Amy fundraising for? Um, I think it was a children's hospital in Gainesville. Yeah, it's a Florida one, but I don't know if she changed it to Texas once she realized that that's kind of our team's focus. And and everyone can focus on different hospitals. We just wanted to focus on Houston, especially because of uh, the hurricane this year. Uh, so yeah, we've got we've got seven team members. Um, we technically have nine because again, Caitlin and Luke are one team, and Anita and I are are also just one team this year because she will be working again. So um, you know, she's she's terrible. Uh, so it's right not now, like what does working have to? How does that help children? Yeah, how does her job as a pediatric pharmacist help children? What a selfish person! I would like to say that we are currently behind a team called Too Much Tuna. Which oh, has five more dollars too much tuna. Yeah, that that needs to. We need to beat you them. You know what that's from, right? No idea. That's from the Kroll Show. Oh, it's so good. Oh tuna. man, I gotta watch that. I, I, everyone always said it was good. It's not on the air anymore, right? It's been off for a while. No, they. Uh, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll had a Broadway special, and that's on Netflix, and they reference it in that too. <laughs> John Mulaney is uh, hysterical. He is he he is great. I mean, not not as funny as as Kumail. I mean, and, and Anita's future husband. That's fair. Kumail not funny, but uh, yeah. So let's get into our first topic for today, and I believe that's going to be. Why don't you guys take it from here? So this week on Kickstarter, um, during the segment, we're going to be looking at a couple of games that are currently trying to be funded through crowdsourcing website called Kickstarter. There's two games in particular that I wanted to 
kind of bring up. Um, one is today is actually the last day it can get funded and it has no problem doing that. It is called the Island of El Dorado. It is currently, the goal was $27,500 and it is currently at $252,547. Okay. Then. So, um, I don't think they're going to have a problem reaching their goal. So what kind of intrigued me about this game, just the quick, bio that it gives the one sentence bio it says it's a strategic board game explore the island gather its resources and cross swords as you race to control powerful shrines and for some reason that immediately made me think of robinson crusoe now robinson crusoe is a co-op game but it has that same idea of you're exploring an island revealing new tiles the land is landscape is different every game um, and you're gathering resources. So I, I at first I was kind of like, okay, this sounds really a lot like Robinson Crusoe. So I wanted to kind of see the differences. And one of the major differences is that it is not co-op. It is definitely, there is a um, kind of battle mechanic as you're each trying to control the four shrines located on this island. It looks really neat. It has what... I think its main component that it's really pushing out is that the game board is different every turn. You have these hexagonal tiles. You reveal them as you explore the island. Um, They're showing some pictures where some people's islands were these like curved or linear islands and some were like a big blob of tiles. Um, So that kind of ups its replayability, kind of gives it a new game feel. And it looks, I mean... I don't know. It seems to be getting some good reviews. It has a dice mechanic to help you explore. You still have, you're trying to build these farmhouses and have these meeples and they kind of help you gather resources and defend your shrines as you start um, trying to control them. So I don't know. Um, I'm like, it's the last day. So if I want to go for it, I feel like I have to go for it. But I I just, I I just found out about it today. So I don't know. (laughs) I'm not invested yet. It says here that it that it's been categorized as a Euro, a 4X, a civilization game, a war game, and a race game. That's a lot of different things in one. Scythe was classified as kind of a semi 4X in in the same way, and 4Xs are kind of if I if I know correctly, they're they're kind of these sprawling epics of games. And I'm just watching this GIF they have on the Kickstarter where the board just gets larger and larger as the characters just expand out it's that's kind of interesting uh how long is the length of this game 20 minutes per player really that's not that, you see that i thought it was going to be much longer uh, but there's really not that many i mean i guess there's a lot of these tiny mechanics but it doesn't seem like an overwhelming you know some of those games like great western trail and even what game we played recently, Networks, where there's like so many different avenues to go down. I mean, it seems like it's very straightforward. Collect resources, get shrines. I'm not going to lie. I can see why people, you said that there was somebody in the FAQ of asking if this was like Catan. <laughs> and I as soon as so, as soon is. as people see hexagon, they're like Catan. No, but I'm, I'm looking at the things here and there's three hexagons and a building that looks just like the city building from Catan with a pawn next to it and little meeples in. So it's kind of like, wait, is this Catan? It's kind of, it, it does kind of remind you of that when you're looking at it. So, I mean, clearly not, I guess, but 
I don't know. Um, I think the most important thing to point out is the magnetic hinged box. What? Yes. Yes. Is that because they reached a stretch goal or? I don't know. I think so. Um, But if you look on the Kickstarter page, it has a gif of the box unfolding and folding back. (laughs) Like the prized part of this game. I've never seen a magnetic, magnetic game box. Seems excessive, but I love it at the same time. <laughs> I love the artwork on some of these tiles. Yeah, it said the art was either inspired or actually taken from 16th century pieces from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They're using here. Here's the thing I'm reading here that you're that you're right. It's from the muse, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He's using it because of open access to their artwork. It looks like they're taking the artwork from these 16th century paintings and using them. That's that's peculiar. They're not. Does that mean that they're they're not spending money on like getting an artist to create the things, and so they're just having? I don't know. That's that seems kind of that, that's kind of peculiar. It's it's a clever idea to do that, but because I guess it saves on money. But um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I just love the meeples that they're making from them. So if you look at the Nicholas the Fortuitous on there, it looks like that thing is going to topple over at like the slightest movement of the table or the board or anything. Is he dancing? <laughs> it is a guy. I like the one that has a horse. Or oh, there's two that have horses. This Nicholas guy, the the meeple, is, is <laughs> he's, he's doing like half the Egyptian, half of what looks like a knee kick with his sword on the ground. It's just, it's bizarre. This guy looks like he knows how to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, it looks neat. I think I would probably definitely sit down and play it if someone had it. Like at Dice Tower, if someone had it, I would probably sit down and play. Um, I like these exploration games and i do like the art i see what i can see where you're coming from where it's almost like a cheat because they didn't create this art but i feel like they still had to hire someone to make it all fit and you know like a graphic designer almost to just kind of you know i mean they didn't just cut and paste mate i mean i don't think I don't know. That's that's what I'm wondering. Like, did you just cut and paste stuff from Google yeah. Image Search that hit the Metropolitan Museum, or you know what I mean? Like, no, you don't want to ask the creators to make the art, but they usually hire artists, yeah. people who who create the work. Yeah, I I I'd be interested if you're if I I would make sure you just check out like a playthrough video and see if that concept appeals to you. How how much is it to back for at a, at a normal level? It's fifty dollars. That's not terrible. You got to make sure it's like. And it's very standard. Yeah. Um, Another game that is, I think, relatively new. um, I don't know when it came on to Kickstarter, but it is a game called Spy Club. Uh, It says a replayable legacy light game where players work together to find clues and crack a case. Unique stories emerge every campaign, and it has also. Um, reached its goal and beyond its goal is 15,000 and it has currently reached seven or or currently has gathered $17,493. So good, good for you guys. Good for you guys. (laughs) Um, What immediately appealed to me about this game was that word legacy. As some of our listeners may know, we are all currently doing a pandemic legacy game. And I just really love that style of game where it's a continuous story 
throughout several games. It's not you sit down, play it, it's done. It continues and it builds on each other. And I really like that. I'm, I'm looking at this. Now, see, this is an example of, of art that I like because this was clearly designed by someone. The art's kind of cute. It looks it looks like a bunch of kids playing a spy game or a, or a detective game. And, uh, and and so that's immediately intriguing. And Foxtrot does some fantastic games. They were behind mm-hmm. Lanterns, which is one that we love. And that's one of Anita's favorite games. Now, Legacy is something that a, a lot of people are trying to get on. And I think because Pandemic Legacy is really what launched that. that so they had Risk Legacy, and that was the very first Legacy game. Oh, God. <laughs> no, it, it, it was the very first Legacy game, and people loved it because Risk has a lot of – there's a lot of love-hate behind Risk. People mm-hmm. grew up playing it. Everyone knows some of the best strategies. It's, a, it's essentially – the great granddaddy of that kind of game, the thing that gets people mm-hmm. into those area control kind of domination. So by adding a legacy component, the whole the whole game just blew up. You could I think you could destroy whole continents. So that the person who did that, who I believe was Rob Davo, the one the same one who worked on the Pandemic Legacy, I think he moved on to that game and made the Pandemic Legacy. The third game to come out that was like that was uh, what is it? Uh, Seafall. Now, the difference is Seafall has very mixed reviews. Some people were fine with it, but a lot of the reviews I saw, the anecdotal discussions were kind of dissatisfied with the way the game went. But that's the very first game to be to be designed as a legacy game from the very beginning because Risk and Pandemic were both games that were standalone on their own. So games like this, like Spy Club and I believe uh, is Charterstone also going to be one? Uh, I'm not games. sure. Think, is it? I think that's semi legacy. Those still there's still no there's still not enough games out to show evidence that well made legacy games can exist based on their own merit. So that'll be exciting to see how games like this are are, are created. So yeah. And it looks like Spy Club is like it from what it from the art and the theme and based on some of the reviews, it's. Looks like it's a fine game um, to play with, you know, your normal gaming group. But it's also a great intro to these style games for younger players or newer players. So that seems neat. Oh, like an it, intro game. And it's cooperative, too, which I, I didn't mm-hmm. realize, which I liked. Uh, a lot of the art reminds me of some of the Mysterium cards, not the not the vision cards that are all crazy, but the ones that have the locations and the people and all the details in the back. They're, they're a lot like that. You know, now that you think, now that I think of it, I don't think I've played a legacy game that isn't co-op and I guess risk definitely is not co-op. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Charterstone um, is going to be, if I'm correct about it being legacy, that's going to be a player versus player game. That's, that's interesting because I feel like with co-op, at least I can speak to our pandemic experience. It's like, we're all going through these changes together and we're all kind of being affected by it. But I feel like in a player versus player, it's like you get so invested in your strategy and, you know, there's that prize at the end that you're trying to get to. And so having to deal with board changes and mechanic changes, I mean, I I can see how that would be. 
Now, with a player versus player legacy game, is it more of like, so you know how at the end of Pandemic Legacy, there's round end bonuses, whether you succeed or fail. I would imagine then, does the person who's like doing the best in the competitive one uh, start to get some downgrades while the players who are, are doing kind of the worst um, then get upgrades to kind of level the playing field each new time? Is that what, is that how that would work? I'm not entirely sure. I, I've never really looked at the Risk Legacy rules, but from what I've seen about Seafall is they found a, a, a lot of the major complaints said that people who were winning during the first couple games just continued to run away with the game afterwards. Mm. So maybe there is nothing like that that gets implemented. So I could see yeah. how that would be... a. That, that why that would be a detriment where like what's the point of playing more games now when the fate of the game is already decided yeah exactly you know i wouldn't i wouldn't mind playing a risk legacy game after when you first said it i was immediately like oh my gosh no <laughs> I, I wonder if there's such a love-hate relationship with risk because for a lot of players i mean that is a heavy game and that i feel like when you play board games with people who aren't regular board game players when you bring up a heavy game, when you just throw them into a heavy game, they can just have a sour taste of tabletop games and like a sour taste of that game. So I wonder if maybe that. Well, especially in a ruthless game like Risk, that's not a, I I didn't grow up playing Risk. Uh, The people I do know who grew up playing Risk are people I would not want to play strategy games with because I know that they're thinking on a level completely above me. Just, Mm -hmm. I I, I think there's, I think being able to grow up and play those games successfully is a a good sign of of learning strategy really well. But I, I didn't play a Risk game until Anita got me as a gift one year. The Risk Godstorm edition where you're playing as either the ancient Greeks or... Oh, that's awesome. Or the Romans or the Celts or the Babylonians. And that's really neat. And there's god cards you can buy, which is just super cool and really makes the game different. And then when your people die, they play – they start taking over the underworld, which is a whole other board. And I thought that was cool. But I Um, haven't played that We need to play it. Yeah, we do. It's uh, it's fun. I I like it. Uh, So now uh, I'll confess that I've never played Risk in any capacity whatsoever. I've also never even seen it being played. So <laughs> I played it. I played it when I was a kid with my dad, because you know my dad was like the person who really got me into um, tabletop and all that. And I don't remember much. I do remember it being a little ruthless, but usually games my dad are ruthless. <laughs> um, I would be interested in playing it now after having so much experience playing tabletop and strategy games. Kind of revisit it. Well, let's let's do that. Let's take a look at the Risk Godstorm, for example, and then if we think this is something we want to try, we can consider the Risk Legacy game. It's still out there. It's still available. All right, so let's just stop this podcast right now. Let's go. Let's meet up. Let's get it going. Ooh, let's do this. Yeah. Uh, any other Kickstarters? I got really excited because I saw a Munchkin Holiday Grab Box Kickstarter, and I thought it was going to be new Munchkin sets, but it's literally just a random assortment of, of like blister packs and expansions for munchkins. And I was like, well, that's kind of disappointing. <laughs> if you're a munchkin fan, it might be fun. Yeah, but it's like, it's random. You don't even know what you're going to get. And I get that that's part of the, you know, excitement of a grab box. But I feel like if you're willing to buy that, you probably already have some of the expansions. Yeah. So 
There's a lot of Munchkin expansions. I don't even remember the last time I played Munchkins. It's so fun. It is. A, it, there are people who just love Munchkin. You can be a dick to everyone. We haven't played it together, have we? I don't think we have. I think at one point you said we didn't play it together because you wanted us to remain friends. <laughs> no, I say that about a lot weird. of games, but uh, Munchkin's, not, <laughs> Munchkin's not one of those. I said that because I wanted the night to end at some point, probably, because every game of Munchkin I've ever played goes on for hours. Really? I don't think we've ever played one lasting longer than about one hour. Oh, wow. Maybe I should play with you guys then. Yeah. <laughs> because we just kill everything. And I kill everyone. everyone. Uh, for, for listeners who, who might not be aware, and if you're big in the board game scene, you, you will be aware, Kickstarter has been a huge boon for board gaming in general, as well as video games. A lot of people get their projects crowdfunded and uh, things that maybe they couldn't get a publisher to, to hook up to or a publisher itself wants to get its games out there but needs that backing a lot of great stuff has come through uh, Kickstarter I recently just received one that I haven't played yet but it was super cheap to back and it's pirate themed it was called Tortuga 16, six, uh, 1667 I think and uh, it's kind of a I think it's semi-social deduction, a little bit of some stuff like that. So I'm excited to check that out. One of our favorite games, Scythe, that was kickstarted. Uh, the Networks was also a kickstarted game from 2015. And now, like I mentioned last week, they have the expansion, the Executives, up on Kickstarter, which I backed. And I believe what it is is the Executives give you certain powers or abilities, but there's also cards that focus what you do or how the game changes so for example there's one that's based off of streaming services i think it's just called flicks it's like netflix and you you don't you can assign anything to any slot you want because there's no real because time doesn't matter like there's no eight o'clock time slot nine o'clock time slot but then there's a i guess there's a downside that's also associated with that and and things like that i think it's important to note that Kickstarter, it doesn't mean it's any less quality. Because like you said, Scythe, Networks, I mean, these are quality games that are on par with any non-crowdsourced game. Well, see, now here, here's the thing. This is where I'm going to go to the other the other end of the spectrum now and say you got to be careful of this. And, and that's mm-hmm. the second thing I wanted to talk about here. Kickstarter is still crowdfunding. Uh, there's no way to tell the quality of a game you can just you can see it played you can download uh the rules you can you know back it and follow it and it could be a reputable person but sometimes remember there's always issues uh, with if they'll deliver because there have been kickstarter horror stories and there's been there's been a lot of people who launch games without play testing them without getting feedback from people outside. Because making a quality board game takes a lot of work and a lot of getting out of your personal space and getting other people to try the game out without you there, too. That's a big thing, too. I, what I want to talk about here is this post that was up on the Board Games subreddit posted by a user <laughs> on September, I'm going to say 14th? Yeah, 10 days ago, September 14th. And it's called An Epiphany After 2.5 Years Backing Board Games on Kickstarter. This person has backed over 100 board game projects on Kickstarter because they were suffering from a thing where they were of uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. They felt that if they weren't backing every single game, they were going to miss all of the hot games and the exclusives. And 
and everything and just kind of being on top of the board game stuff. And what they call this in the board game world is cult of the new. It's this idea that games that are not the newest and not the freshest, uh, they're old. They're old school. You know, Scythe, that game? Yeah, that came out like a year or two ago. We're moving on to other things. You know, there's a lot of that happening because people just want to get the newest, hottest thing. And there's this idea that board games build on each other. You know, oh, that mechanic that we used 10 years ago, well, we've advanced it several times since then, so now it's been finalized in this new game. But next year it'll be used in a different way, like deck building, or, you know, area control or something like that. And I think there's this false idea about that. And I'm just looking at this. And what I loved about this post is this person says, you know, over 100 board game projects and gives a lot more detail, uh, saying basically it became an addictive habit. And the top post of that says that you realize when people say they've spent too much on Kickstarter, they mean $1,000 or $2,000. Or crazy ones at 3000 4000 this person calculated that they must have spent over $17,000 on Kickstarter. Oh, my God. And the person points out that board game inventory at a store is between 5000 and 10000 This person spent almost enough for two to three board game store inventories in Kickstarter stuff. And the point of the post was saying that they just realized after 25 years, two and a half years, and $17,000 that a lot of these Kickstarter games were not that good. And so what you need to take from this is, yeah, if you see a game that you know is good or you really want to try, and I've done that. I've backed stuff I, that I've risked. I I backed Scythe with very little knowledge about how the game played out, but people were going nuts, and I went, I went for it. I backed the Tortuga game because it was cheap. I backed Apex the theropod deck building game with dinosaurs because it had dinosaurs. These are risky investments. Sometimes they'll work out. Sometimes they won't. And that's just something people need to, to take in, to take into account this past weekend. And by this past weekend, I mean this current weekend on Friday night at midnight, I went to my friendly local game store, cardboard castle games in Augusta, Georgia, and played the pre-release for the Ixalan magic set. I was super pumped. They had decorated the whole place up with uh, like a jungle artwork and and there were some dinosaurs and pirate things and they handed out buttons halfway through that said surrender your booty and uh, oh. it was I, I was a little upset that I did not drop the money on one of those inflatable T-Rex costumes and, and show up like that because I think it would have been really funny but uh, that but now I'm glad I saved the money. Unless, but there's so many things I could have used that for. Hmm, I'll have to think about it. And I mean, when is that not exactly? Handy? I mean, I should just show up to work with that at some point. So, <laughs> uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed playing this set. the The theme is fantastic. The cards were great. I think everyone was having a blast. I wanted to make a dinosaur deck, but I didn't get the cards to do so because in a magic pre-release, they give you a box and it's got six packs of cards and you have to make a deck of 40 cards from whatever it is you got. So you can't trade with people. It has to be from that set, from those cards. And this is the kind of stuff where I shine. I've, I'm, I've gotten very good at making decks from this kind of format. Well, now let me ask you this. With the commander that we talked about, the commander decks that we talked about last podcast, um, those were very set. Like these are the cats, these are the wizards. Um, how does that work in a pre-release? Because I mean, I saw those same like there were pirates and then there were the dinosaurs. 
I mean, is it just like in each pack, there's a random assembly of each of those different tribes? Or is it like this pack is primarily dinosaurs? Oh, no, no, no. In a new set release like this, they just create all the cards as if it was a normal set. You'll open a booster pack and you'll have 15 cards and maybe a little add. So there'll be uh, one one rare, three uncommon cards, and the rest are all commons. And they're just sorted randomly throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire set. Now the commander set; those are designed as a as a release of hey, here's our commander decks. There, it's a very separate thing from the set releases because now what people do is they take all these cards and they don't make just a pirate deck. They don't make just a dinosaur deck. They combine the best cards that they need to make the deck they want. And then this these are the cards that will be used in the standard tournaments that come out, the ones where people are playing for a lot of money. This is the set for that. They wouldn't be they, they're not allowed to take cards from let's say the commander set. That those are just for fun and for people who like to play commander. So that's how those are different. It's not the you you can't go in saying Oh man, I I hope I get all dinosaur cards, or I'm just going to make a dinosaur thing. You you can only make what's there, if that makes sense. So I I really wanted to make dinosaurs, but I didn't open enough of them, and the ones that I did open in my six packs of cards were too expensive to play in the game. They would they would have taken forever to come out. I would have lost real fast. So I'm looking at the cards I have, and I realize I've got pretty sweet pirates going on in the colors black and blue, which are usually not my favorite colors to play, but uh, there were a lot of tricks and a lot of cool, like, pirates, and I had some merfolk, too. So, like again, like, there's a merfolk tribe tribal thing going on there, but I only had a couple merfolk in there. I played against a lot of dinosaurs. It was sad to have to crush them, but when you're a pirate, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Now, will they make a commander deck that are are like specifically dinosaur or where the cats was it i mean was that the commander deck for this yeah every year they release a new set of commander stuff based on something this was the first year they went tribal and had a theme like cats wizards dragons etc we don't know what they're going to do next year until they announce it they might go back to like color combinations like this will be a red white blue deck and this will be a green black red deck and and that's how they'll theme it there's no way to tell until next year. Uh, if people want to make a dinosaur deck now, this set gives them a commander they can use. There's a big old dinosaur uh, avatar card that brings dinosaurs out of your deck. It will be a perfect dinosaur commander. And there's also some great pirates that could be used as pirate commanders too. And that's a lot of fun for commander players. They love making the theme decks and, and trying to get them to work the best they can. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm a magic noob myself um and just from my limited experience with magic i really i i get i think more excited about these tribal themed decks and like the tribal just elements to the magic than um last year's theme i mean i liked playing last year but i really like these you know like different races and tribes and th- I, I i really like that style you really You'll so probably far. really enjoy this set. I thought maybe for Extra Life we could run a draft or a game thing with it, but that takes up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. We can we can talk about it or explore it from there. Uh, that night on Friday, I you, we there was four games total. It was done in a Swiss round kind of way, so you got prizes if you you know won most of your games. Uh, I I lost the f- no, I won the first one, lost the second, won the third. 
lost the the last one, so I went I went two and two. Uh, my deck was all about flying over my opponents because I had a lot of like pirates and sirens yeah. that kept flying over things and attacking with unblockable merfolk, which was really fun, and just bouncing their cards back. Um, and I just want to talk about this. There was this little girl there. Uh, she must have been between like nine and 12 or something like that. And I think she was there with her father, and she was playing a merfolk deck, a green-blue, just like lots of mermaids and stuff like that, and mermans. And I just see her playing against what must be like the biggest guy there. He's this—he's taller than me. He's—he's he's huge and he's got a big personality. And I think she was just crushing him. And it was, wow! That's I awesome. go over and I'm like, "Are you essentially running a Little Mermaid deck and crushing him?" And she's like, "Yeah." And so that was—that was fun to watch. And it's—it's uh, it's fun to see all people of different ages coming together in what is usually just a very uh, male, you know teenager to 30s centric kind of game in my opinion anyway Mm -hmm. so that was nice to see all right so i guess the next thing that we'll talk about is uh vr so emily and i got into vr over the summer after waiting and wanting to get into it for a while so we bought the playstation vr and that only lasted uh about a week before I decided I had to spend the money and upgrade to an Oculus Rift because I was so invested. <laughs> and um, don't get us wrong. The PlayStation VR is an excellent VR, and it was a great entry to VR. Um, it had a lot of game, really accessible games, and it's a little bit less intense. Like people who don't usually like video games or don't have a lot of experience or have never done anything VR, I mean – I think PSVR was a great entry into the VR world. Yeah, and I think the other thing with PSVR is it works out really well for having in your living room and kind of showing to other people. It's really easy to pop off and on to kind of switch between individuals to show them, oh, you guys have to try this out. And a lot of the games are, you know, they have them both on PC as well as PlayStation. So like Job Simulator or Batman Arkham VR or anything like that. They kind of have it on both, and they get a couple uh, really neat games just being, you know, backed by Sony that they're able to get, like, Resident Evil 7 came to PSVR before. Uh, It's going to come to Oculus and Vive next year and everything, so they have some really good partnerships and everything, but my main complaint with the PSVR is it uses the PlayStation 3's uh, Move controllers, so they're not quite as ergonomic as they could be, and they don't have joysticks, which... I think really make a big difference mm-hmm. um, and the oculus touch controllers are just really fantastic so we ended up getting into that and it's been fun we you know a lot of the things aren't fully like what you think of a fully fleshed out game that's going to last you know a 10-hour campaign or or you know even longer than that 20 to 40 hours or anything like that but Recently, we uh, have tried some new games, and one that really stuck out to us was called Echo Arena, which is the multiplayer portion of the game Lone Echo. So both of those are pretty much the coolest things that I've experienced in gaming since, probably since I played like Super Mario 64 and saw 3D graphics like for real at home for the first time. It's just a completely different way of playing games than I'm used to. So a lot of games struggle with movement mechanics and do a little teleporting from here to there. You're not really moving through the environment in VR. But Lone Echo and Echo Arena, so you're in a space station 
So you're in zero gravity and you have, you play as a robot. So you have little jet boosters on your hands and everything like that. And you kind of navigate the environment through using these jet boosters and braking, as well as using your arms to grab onto pretty much any surface to kind of propel yourself around. And it, it's just amazing how natural it really feels. And when you're playing online, you see other people, they look at you, you can hear them talking through the headset. It's like, it's, it's the first time that I felt like, holy crap, this feels like Ready Player One. Like we are on the path to this and I cannot wait. And I, I told Emily, I was like, I've, I got this new game. You really have to try it. It's truly amazing. And she was like, okay, finally I'll get around to it. And I don't know. I, do you want to talk about it? Emma? I thought you were pretty shocked too. Yeah, I mean, it truly, playing a little bit of PSVR and some of the, you know, just one player quick games in Oculus. I mean, that alone was like kind of breathtaking and just like new and just innovative. But when I stepped into Echo Arena and there were other people who, because the Oculus Rift aligns so well with your own facial and body movements, I mean, it was so just mind-blowing. I mean, <laughs> when people started coming up to me and talking to me and, like, trying to make me do stuff, I was like, I, I cannot, like, I was so shook. I ended up getting into, like, the fetal position because I was, like, just so, like, I cannot, I cannot right now. Like, this is just too overwhelming for me. And uh, finally, I kind of got over it a little bit. But it was still, I mean, like Sean said, we love the story Ready Player One. That's all about a virtual world. And Echo Arena was the first time I felt like, oh, like, this could be a thing. Like, this could actually come to fruition at some point. Maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe in our lifetimes. Who knows with how quickly things are moving along. Yeah, it's just, it's truly awesome. Have you taken a chance to Google it at all or anything like I'm that, looking Jacob? At it right now, uh, I'm watching a video of it being played on their official website. This is... This is essentially the thing, the battle arena for practice in Ender's Game. Exactly. That's exactly what I said, too, the first time this I saw is, it. It looks just like Ender's Game, and it looks incredible. And, and right now, if people are interested, if you have an Oculus Rift, it looks like it is free until October 20th, courtesy of Intel, is what it says. This has to be fascinating. I, I can't even imagine what this has to feel like. Um, I'm going to leave right now. I'm going to show up at your house in about a minute or two, so... <laughs> never leave. yeah it's it's just truly amazing and i mean it's it's not even just us who are kind of raving about it so it has an 89 on metacritic and ign gave it an 8.9 as well and so it's it's pretty well regarded as one of the better vr games you can experience right now and i actually haven't played through the full single player campaign or anything but it's supposed to be pretty awesome too you're just kind of navigating the space environment and you have a companion who's a human companion. You're the robot working with her on the space station. And it's supposed to have some pretty good dialogue and everything, too. So I'm excited to kind of explore that more. It was just really kind of shocking. Like, I've enjoyed pretty much everything I've tried on VR. And a lot of the stuff is fun and goofy and a little different. Like, like kind of like Job Simulator or anything like that. Batman Arkham VR was really special the first time I played it. It's only about an hour and a half long. But it's just kind of amazing to experience. And then... This is the first time where I was like, felt like, okay, this moving in VR feels natural. And like, you almost kind of dissociate from the real world just because you're like feeling like, oh, this feels like perfect to kind of navigate through, which is really just kind of special to feel. Cause I felt like I haven't really felt 
anything necessarily new in gaming for a while. I feel like a lot of it is just kind of bigger versions of what, what was being done before. And so this felt just so special for something that, oh, I feel like a kid again. I feel like this is the first time I'm experiencing something. And it's such an all-body experience and sensation. I mean, like you said, the movements are so realistic. I mean, I was getting motion sickness the first time I was playing it because it was just so different. And until I kind of got adjusted to it, I mean, it just it felt... I mean, I remember like us kind of going through the, the whole living room and like, you know, running into things or not having any kind of sense of location of where we were at because we were so just in this other world. Uh, it looks like there's another game very similar to this. It's not multiplayer. It's a single player game called Lone Echo. Yeah, that's the so that's the single player component. They're both by Ready at Dawn, um, which is they've done some, you know, of their own games. They made uh, the Order 1886 on playstation 4 um a lot of what they did is kind of work with other studios properties so they made the god of war games on the psp i think they made the daxter game um on psp and then they also did like okami when they ported that to the wii and added motion controls so they've done a little with motion controls before and so i guess that probably helps out but the Lone Echo is the pay for it it's a single player experience and then they decided to make the Echo Arena, the multiplayer one, like you were saying, free for a limited amount of time. That's just crazy. That's really cool. I was just going to say, I, I think it's a pretty neat way to kind of get people into the game because a lot of times with VR, you're like, oh, I want to try stuff. And you know it's going to be a smaller experience than you're spending when you're buying like a PlayStation 4 game. Like if I buy Persona 5, I know I'm going to spend 100 hours in this one game. Whereas a lot of times I'll pay $30 and know I'm only going to get about an hour or two out of a VR game. So it was really cool to kind of give this multiplayer portion out for free because it, it makes me want to buy that game. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And I think and I hope that uh, other gaming companies will start to do that, kind of give a portion of their VR game away for free to give you a taste and get you in because it, it makes me want to purchase it. And I'm, I'm definitely interested in anything else Ready at Dawn does now for the VR that's really cool. This looks this looks amazing, and the VR thing is that that looks incredible. Because when I when I tried it at your place, I when I just played Batman for what five minutes, and I wasn't even playing. I was just kind of looking around. I was just blown away by the whole thing, just how immersive it felt. Even if you're not holding, even when you're holding stuff, and that's kind of you have to click buttons to pick stuff up. It still felt like it, it, it's all around me, you know. Just well, and that's the thing about. That PS, the PS controllers versus the Oculus Rift controllers is with the PS controllers. You, yeah, it was like pushing a button, moving your hand towards that area. But with Oculus Rift, the way the hand controllers work, I mean, it is truly like finger movements, um, grabbing things. I mean, it's crazy. It, it not only recognizes when you press down a trigger, it, it recognizes when you're half pressing it, it, rec it recognizes when your finger is resting on it versus when it's not, and so you can like point to stuff by, by pointing in real life, it'll show your index finger pointing in the game even though it's not on the controller at oh that point, and like it'll move your thumb depending on what button you're touching on the front of it, it's, it's really, really awesome. So, um... <laughs> This week, my dad sent Sean and I a message asking for some advice about, um, he currently has a PlayStation 4. He's interested in 
um, replacing it with a switch. And it kind of got Sean and I thinking about just the two different consoles and um, the pros and cons of each. And is the PS4 something to trade in for the switch? Yeah. So I, so I, I kind of gave him the advice just because of for, for his personal interest, a lot of it is playing games with his younger daughters. Um, and so the switch is kind of a, a nice system for that. Nintendo's always been a family oriented kind of game system. And now they're getting some bigger games. Wolfenstein and doom are all coming to the switch. Skyrim's coming to the switch. So they're getting some bigger games, but then you also have the Mario's and Zelda's and everything like that. Um, and personally, I love the switch form factor. I rarely ever play it on the TV unless we're playing like Mario Kart. Um, just sitting in bed and using it as a handheld, it's kind of the dream. I was a PS Vita apologist for a while and wanted to make that succeed when it wasn't really a great system. Um, and the switch kind of has taken that as its natural successor almost, and it has a better backing by Nintendo. But I think what Emily was kind of getting at too, is that thinking about it compared to the PS4, she actually recommended that her dad not sell the ps4 if possible and you know kind of find a way to to do both and i i kind of feel the same way as much as i love the form factor of the switch i predominantly still play either on pc or on playstation 4 just because it's kind of what i'm used to there's a, a greater selection of games and it's nice to play in front of a tv and everything and i know you can on the switch but you can get some grander games when you have the a console as big as the PS4 compared to something that's essentially running off of a tablet. And that's what's so hard about the Switch and Nintendo in general. Unless you are a Nintendo diehard, you don't play video games unless it's Mario, Yoshi, Super Smash, Pokemon. Like, it's... I, I couldn't honestly recommend getting the Switch to be your sole system. And the problem with the Switch, too, is that even though... I love, like Sean was saying, you can have handheld, you can play on TV, um, the, you can take the controllers off and do some couch co-op. It's still, there's still so few games available for the Switch for how long it's been out. I've never seen a console struggle this long to be adding games to their library or to open up their virtual console. Um, and so it's hard to, you know, recommend to someone, yeah, get rid of something like the PS4 that has so such a wide variety of games and such um, of expanse of those really in-depth games. No, it's got a, it's got a huge library. It's got it's supported by lots of third-party developers, and the Switch is not. And even. And even games. I mean, I don't know about the Switch, so I am being a little judgmental based on past Nintendo consoles, but games like like one that my dad brought up was Battlefront because um, he loves Star Wars. We've always played Battlefronts together and other Star Wars games, but back with the GameCube and the Wii, even those games, even though they were available on Nintendo systems, they still weren't as great as playing on a PS4 or Xbox. So I just, it's like, I wish... I don't know. I almost wish sometimes Nintendo would kind of fill in that missing link, the missing piece that's needed. But still, despite that, I love the Switch and I'm so glad that we have it. And I mean, I do love those Nintendo brands, but it's just hard. I just wish it could be the console 
and you want it wouldn't just be like oh that's supplementary if you can get it get it yeah and i think that you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying it shouldn't necessarily be your primary console um i listen to a lot of gaming podcasts particularly with kind of funny they're kind of funny games daily and their games cast each week and the way they kind of talk about it is is it's the best secondary console which i agree with and so for the longest time you know people were like oh do i get a playstation 4 or an xbox one or a ps3 or an xbox 360 when they came out and then you'd get one and then down the road you'd say well maybe i'll get the xbox or the playstation whichever one you didn't get as kind of your backup to play the exclusives on that and i think the problem now is xbox probably has to be somewhat worried because PlayStation 4 is outselling Xbox pretty heavily. I think it's probably up near like 65 million to about 40 million or 35 million. They're almost double the numbers. Um, And so they don't really have the catalog either right now. And their main problem is all their new exclusives they're publishing are also coming to PC. And I think they kind of did that to make sure their software sales increase, but it kind of cannibalizes their own hardware sales. And now that anybody who's looking, who has a PlayStation 4 and is like, well, if I'm going to get another console, I'd get the Switch because there's tons of games I can't play anywhere on there. And it's a, it's a different form factor. You can bring the Switch anywhere you go. If you travel a lot, the Switch works out really well. Whereas there's no reason to really buy the Xbox as your secondary console anymore. And so I think that's kind of an interesting way that they put it. And that really makes sense to me is, why would I recommend somebody get an Xbox at this point? I would either recommend you get a PlayStation 4 or if you already have that, go ahead and get a Switch because you're going to get a different experience with that. And then the other thing with the in terms of the library and how they're kind of failing to establish themselves, I mean, the Switch has been out for about six months now. And so it's it's still struggling to get the games. And it has some, and I think the biggest problem is that the third-party games, which Nintendo's always had a problem with in in recent years, and that kind of stems in that they are getting third-party games, but not all of them are new. So Skyrim's one of the one that people are waiting for, and that game came out in, like, 2011, I think. Doom is going to be a year or two old by the time it comes out. Uh, Rayman Legacy came out, and that's been out for a couple years on other systems. And so there's kind of... I know cult of the new and board games or whatever, but in video games, people tend to play games when they come out and then forget about them, unless they're a truly epic experience or something like that. And so Skyrim people love to dive back into, but I feel like a lot of the smaller games that Switch is getting, people don't really care about anymore. And that's not to say that they shouldn't, but it's just kind of like you need some third-party backing if it's going to be a primary console. Well, and my thing about the Switch, I don't even care. Like, and it is because it is our secondary console. We have the PS4. That is our console for games. My issue with the Switch is not that they're not getting more third-party games, although I th- that would help. My issue is that they're not putting all of the Nintendo classics that we love and that people get Nintendo consoles for and handhelds for. They're not adding those to the virtual console. And I, that's such... I mean, it would be so great if I could just like download some of those old classics ones that I love ones that I've always wanted to get to I mean I just don't I don't understand what's stopping them (laughs) yeah I mean considering how easy it is to get emulators running and you could pretty much get any of the classic systems and there were rumors before the switch came out and that still are lingering that 
when they do add virtual console, you know, they're going to even add GameCube games to the virtual console this time. And so to think you'd have access to the whole Nintendo library, it's kind of odd because you look at emulators on PC and on, you know, even Android and iPhone and everything where you could pretty much play anything. There's some games that have hiccups, but you would think Nintendo knows how much of a money pit that would be. So all they'd have to do is pretty much find a way to essentially flick a switch I'm, I'm assuming because it can't be that hard to make the transition considering every usable device can run emulators pretty much um so i don't know exactly why they're holding off on it and i think that's what has people kind of irritated because nintendo tends to to do things that don't really make sense they know again with the, like the snes classic that'll be coming out this year the the mini console they know people are going to want it yet they only make a limited amount and then it causes resellers to to sell them for a much higher price than, than the people who actually want them. Um, so it kind of it's Nintendo doesn't really always make sense, and I don't think they really ever have. And I think that's the most frustrating part no, about their it. Business model is non-existent. I I don't understand them, and they frustrate <laughs> me to no end because it's all the things you said and then some. Let's talk about this for a second. Why am I seeing TV commercials for a new Metroid game? On the Nintendo DS. <laughs> what? Okay, yeah. You know yes, what? The DS is yes, one of the best-selling yes. handheld consoles of all time, and that's great. Where's my Metroid for, for Switch or for... Was there even a Metroid yes. for Wii U, or was it just the one where it was where they tried to tell her backstory and people didn't like that? No, there's nothing on the Wii U for it, and I think Nintendo would like to forget the Wii U exists. It didn't really pan out for them, but the the big thing that you mentioned was that they're still making games for the 3DS, and goodness gracious, I will not buy another game for my 3DS. No. I hated the form factor of the 3DS. I know some people like it. I, I don't really like the dual screens, and I don't... The games just look off, and like I know some of them... You know, you can kind of scale your graphics to be a 2D or 2.5D and it works out. But just because of the resolutions of the screen, it looks blocky. And the best experience on those was playing on the XL consoles, which have the bigger screens. But because the resolutions made for the smaller screens, it looks even more stretched out and looks weird. And it's just like you have this awesome, super, super fantastic console that's probably the coolest thing you've done in 10 or 15 years and you're still making games for this old system and it's like just just drop it i have ours in a drawer and i'm like every time i see it i, I get this disgusted <laughs> feeling i don't want to see my 2ds or my 3ds anymore just give me everything on the switch yes. please i remember i remember getting so excited with the switch and just how great it was and i was like because i mean pokemon is my i mean every year or every new pokemon i'm always playing it the week it comes out and I was like, this is going to be great. And then, nope, the next Pokemon's yeah. coming for a 3DS. Nope, this is coming for a 3DS. And it's like, we've moved on. It's so strange. I just don't know any other console or brand that does this. So, so I, was, I, I actually don't know where you guys were for this. I was, I was optimal childhood age for the console wars when it used to be Sega versus Nintendo. And, and you used to tattoo yeah. it on your arm with your... With your uh, um, semi-permanent tattoos there <laughs> and you know are you a sonic or a mario guy and nintendo the first time i ever yeah. was able to own two consoles was when we had the playstation and then i saved up and bought my own n64 because i wanted to have 
I wanted to play Mario Kart and and Smash Brothers and and the superbly amazing racing game from Star Wars Phantom Menace, the pod racing game, which yes. was super fun, and things like that. And, and and I didn't I didn't play Goldeneye that much, but you could play it and such. And then for a while after that, Nintendo just struggled. And then they come out with the most fascinating system on the face of the planet, and that is the Wii. And suddenly everything's revolutionized, and and the Wii is selling out, and and I got it like first weekend it came out, you know, and our friends played it for years while we were in college because I got it junior year of college, and I don't think that system turned off from the, from the time we got it in college to senior year and graduation, and so and it got to play the GameCube games, so you got all these really great GameCube games that came out, like the Mario Baseball was a lot of fun, and. Uh, and the and the Smash Brothers before the one for the Wii came out, and so we actually have two Wiis because I got a Nita one for the uh, the for when we weren't living together, when before we were engaged and such, so she could play one too, so she could play the fun games. And now I'm looking through this stuff and I'm like, oh, who wants to play that stuff now? And I'm watching the Mario Marathon online and they're playing Mario Galaxy, and I'm like, oh, I used to love that game, and this is making me want to play it all over again. And I'm like, well, I have to take the Wii out of being packed up. I have to set it up to these TVs. It's not going to be an HDMI, and it's going to look terrible because we used to play on these small screens and looked fine. But the minute we got the big screen yep. with the HD TV, it just doesn't compare. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can. Uh, is it backwards compatible with the with the Wii U? Can I get one of those and 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 play my old GameCube games on there and my and my, here's the thing, I'm not one of those people, and a lot of us are not those people who own and hold on to every system we get. It, it just takes up space, mm-hmm. and these games are just not going to play anymore. The only difference now is because the PlayStation 3 and 4 are not backwards compatible, I still have my PS3, uh, but I don't play it that much. I don't use it that much, so I'm going to move it to another room, use it as a DVD player, and if I ever want to revisit old games, sure. But I wish Nintendo... Like you said, since there's so many emulators out there, would just somehow get its crap together and just combine everything. That's what the Switch should be. The Switch should be, oh, you know that really great Wii game we had? Uh, we, we put it in there. You know that the N64 game? We put it in there. Um, uh, the, the one good Wii U game? We put it in there. So if I take out my Wii right now, I can play Mario Kart uh, 64, the... Um, the old Super Smash Brothers, and then, like, you know, the very first Mario or the very first uh, Legend of Zelda. Why can't you do that? So I thought about picking up the Switch, too, because we, when we played at your place and we played the the uh, Mario Kart, and it was so much fun, and he was like, oh, I really want to play this again. I missed it so much. And I'm like, yeah, but if we buy this, there's literally only, like, three games out, and neither of us care about mm-hmm. Legend of Zelda. And I know people are going to hate me for saying that. I don't care I don't care about Zelda. I don't. Okay, so <laughs> that's not a selling point for me. So so I even Eric, he bought the Switch, played through the Legend of Zelda game and then returned it. Ugh, He's just insane. like I he says I have no reason after I've beaten the game, there's no reason to hold on to this anymore. Nothing else is on the horizon to come out that's interesting him. So it's it's super frustrating that that they could that that back when I was in college and the Wii U came out and everything was great, that they've just fallen so far from, since then that they they haven't kept up. That that you can't play DVDs on their systems. Can you play movies on the Switch? 
Um, no, so they don't even have like a, a Netflix. No, exactly. I'm like, once once people got over what essentially became a gimmick, people got tired of it, and they went back yeah. to sitting down with their controllers playing high quality graphic games that went on for hours at a time that they could play online with people, and then when they were done, they could stream their Netflix and their Hulu and put it in a Blu-ray. And people are like, why do I have this Nintendo? Now it's a secondary console, and some people don't have the money for that. Yeah, I, I was just running some numbers on it right now in terms of, of the Wii adoption rate for games and why I think Nintendo kind of got ahead of themselves a little bit. And so in terms of like the adoption rate of some of their best games, so the Wii Sports and everything that always got bundled in sold really well, but... Mario Galaxy, which is like the, you know, premier Mario game on that console, had an adoption rate of 12.5% of, so only 12% of all Wii owners ever played that game, which is insane considering that's probably the biggest game franchise in Mario, and you can only get roughly a tenth of the people to buy it, and you compare that to Uncharted, which, you know, the, a lot of mainstream people don't even know Uncharted, and that had 11.4%. So that's a that's a really comparable thing on the PlayStation 4. And then you look at Zelda, which only had a 7% of all people who had a Wii played it. So only 7% play your biggest, your second biggest franchise. It's a little wild to me. And I think Nintendo, you know, they saw how many consoles sold, and they got ahead of themselves, and that's why they made the Wii U, which ended up failing miserably. But Even though we had one. Yeah, I mean, well, we buy everything. <laughs> but I, I love the Wii U. I mean, I don't think it was like ugh. new to the Wii. I mean, I just liked having a screen, and now the Switch does that, so it's perfect. But I think with the Wii, when you're talking about adoption rates, the big thing with the Wii, like Jacob was saying, that it was such a gimmick. I mean, everyone, like people who never play video games, were like, oh, I can play bowling and golf. And, I mean, everyone, like... I feel like my grandparents got a Wii. Yeah. Like, just people who don't... I mean, everyone's just getting the Wii. That's the thing. Like. People always bought the Wii because it came with Wii Sports. But there is so many people... It would, I bet it's probably close to half of the people bought the Wii, got Wii Sports, and, and never that was bought it. another yeah. game. Yeah, that, the Wii had some quality games. First of all, it had Metroid Prime 3 Corruption, which was superb. It had <laughs> Super Paper Mario, which is one of the most mm-hmm. entertaining and hysterical RPGs, action RPGs I've ever played. It didn't have as good of a baseball game as as the one for for uh, for GameCube, but like the fact that I I didn't own a GameCube, that entire generation of Nintendo was gone oh. to me. So the minute you could backwards compatible play those games i started picking them up and i'm like wow what a what a fantastic system this was and i have the and playing on the gamecube controllers were were so much fun like these i have these big wireless ones and i'm like this is mm-hmm. this is great you know you know what they missed what what uh rpg fans and board game fans say a lot about the wii u is why didn't they get in touch with wizards of the coast and make a Dungeons and Dragons Wii U game where one person mm. held on to the board and was a dungeon master and everyone oh, else wow. was using the game in some other capacity. Why did that not happen? Why, Sean? That could have been really special. Well, 
I guess my last thing that I want to rant on with Nintendo is, like we said, they're still making 3DS games. And I just remembered that they announced Mario Party The Top 100, which is the top 100 Mario Party mini games, all assembled into one game. And they announce it for the mother frickin' 3DS instead Shut of the up. Switch. Yes, because I want to play Mario Party on my console with friends who aren't near me. No, Mario Party is like the ultimate couch game. And Nintendo, why? Why, why do you make me hate you, Nintendo? Why? There is already a Mario Party. For the for the DS and the 3DS, uh, which is great. It is a great Mario Party, but it's also just a handheld one. You know, like that's what it is. W- where's the ones for the console? Like, why? <laughs> where's the thing where I can turn the, the 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 joystick on my on my the pad of my hand until it gets raw and I have to sue? Like, <laughs> which, which <laughs> happened to me. I definitely was one of the millions of people who millions of kids who hurt themselves figuring out that that was the best way to use the stick. That's frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hate I hate and love you so much Nintendo. So much. I know. But all that being said, I am excited for Mario Odyssey. That looks like it's going to be so fun and the best, hopefully, we'll see. Um, I'm still going to hold out hope. I'm still going to keep my Switch. I mean... <laughs> I mean, they've announced stuff, and people are like, oh, Nintendo's doing so well. They announced Metroid Prime 4, and they announced that there's going to be a mainstream Pokemon game coming. Okay, but they announced these, and they don't... They didn't give any, like, teaser images. They're clearly in the beginning stages of development. So am I not going to get these awesome games on Switch for another two years after this is... Because 2017 is pretty good when you look that we get a full Mario game and a full Zelda game. There's normally years between those. What am I going to be playing in 2018 considering Pokemon and Metroid seems so far away? It, it like it feels like there's this massive gap, and I, I realize we're not even there yet. They'll find something to fill it. But if I'm just playing Splatoon and Arms and games like that for a year, it's like, come on, that these aren't games that that'll make me want to keep my console around and charged. You know what you're gonna be playing? You're gonna be playing your Oculus Rift and your PS4. Exactly. Or if you're somebody else, your Xbox. You know what I mean? Like that's what you're gonna be doing, and it's gonna sit there collecting dust. And then once they come out, you know, one at a time, several months apart, oh, maybe I'll try this. But, you know, are you really going to? Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks thank you, Sean us. Emily. And thank you all for listening to our podcast. Again, join us next time. And please check out our Extra Life page. Please send us some money our way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would really appreciate that. Uh, or send money to me. Just, you know, just send it. Just send it. Money. Just send it. Also, donations to Children's Hospital, sure. sure. Uh, Thank you all so much. Uh, Again, I am Jacob. I'm Emily. And I'm Sean. And this has been Geek and Spiel Podcast. Have a great one.